first, let us begin by looking up at the star, uh, looking up at the stars and going to space. And we are very pleased, as we are regularly, to be joined by a gentleman who knows more about space than just about anybody on the radio. He also has, bar none, the best voice of anybody on the radio. Uh, very pleased to be joined once again by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. Steve, it is great to talk with you again, my friend. Frank, good to be back here on 77 WABC. We're here in Sedona, Arizona, and just completed another one of our nighttime programs here for guests. And what a beautiful night it is, and I'm hoping the same for the audience of uh, 77 WABC. Tell me about those nighttime programs. What do you guys do out there in Sedona, Arizona, exactly? For what's, what does the program consist of? Well, it's a beautiful celebration, Frank, of the nighttime sky, because Sedona is one of world. That is a international dark sky community, meaning they shelter the light so people can cherish this great resource that we have, which is seeing the night sky. So I'm asked over 10 years, I've been coming to this one location, and it's called the Wild Resort and Spa. We've done this for so many uh, locations here in Arizona, but let's go out with the high-powered lasers under the beautiful clear skies, the telescopes, and do the whole story that we do here on this radio show, sharing with people the need to look up and to cherish the skies and kind of get us away from so much of the world's political news and all the other things that uh, we all try to say, well, why can't we all just get along stuff? But uh, people seem to enjoy this. And I'm privileged and honored to be with you, Frank, and the listeners here. Wonderful. Well, we're honored to have you as always. All right. Now, I one of the first things that's on my mind, I got a whole bunch of emails yesterday from listeners listening on the radio, not over the app, not on the website, all of whom saying they had a difficult time hearing the radio transmission, hearing the radio signal. Uh, We had our engineers, I drove them crazy today, investigating all of our equipment and what's happening at the transmitter. The answer came back, our equipment's working fine. And I said, well, I wonder if that could have possibly been a solar flare. What's happening in in terms of solar activity right now? And could the transmission issues we experienced yesterday have been due to a solar flare? It's probable, Frank, but I doubt that. But here's what's going on in the sun. As we talked about in our last episode, solar cycle 25 is just really on the uptick. And for all the scientists that predicted that this might have been a milder solar cycle than in the previous cycle 24, No, it's just quite the opposite. So just right now, as we're talking live, we have an opportunity now. If people go to various websites, you'll see a full disk image of the sun. And the sun is populated with a lot of these big sunspot groups. And over the week, I have a solar telescope, Frank, that I look peering into the sun safely. It's called the Hydrogen Alpha Telescope. And I've been studying these sunspot groups. But out of this particular group, there's like three or four massive groups on the sun right now. And some of the important ones that are producing these flares or geomagnetic storms are moving to the right side or going to go around the other side of the sun. But guess what? There's more coming from the other side. And just the other day, we had a dual M-class flare, which isn't quite as powerful as an X. So it is possible. But what we know about radio, to answer your question, there were radio disruption in the 20 megahertz ranges. And I gather that's certainly not the frequency that, of course, 77 WABC is on. But it had severe uh, radio interruptions as these solar flares you know, send out so much energy from the sun, they kind of crackle the upper atmosphere. Hmm. 
So in many cases, radio and ham radio operators know this better. They sometimes use the skip of the ionosphere, just like this radio station signal gets heard all over with its great power. But in this particular case, I don't think, Frank, that that may, may have been the major cause, but I would be surprised if not stumped if indeed it was due. And I guess what I can say in simple English, we can expect more you know, induction of these type of events to come as opposed to less. All right. Well, hey, uh, the, the investigators will continue investigating if that's the case. Yeah. B- b- by the way, uh, Steve is going to join us for the hour. So if you have questions about anything related to space, the stars, uh, or astronomy, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-WABC. We'll try and get to as many of your calls as we can. That's 1-800-848-9222. What causes that type of solar activity? I mean, I know the sun is a star, and I know yep. it's the one that we're we're closest to. But what what makes it behave differently at certain parts of the years than uh, certain parts of the year, or in other years than than it does at other times? Great question. The surface of the sun, if you can even imagine that, it's at this bubbling mass of too hot to burn. The surface of this photosphere, as we see when we hopefully don't stare at the sun, the bright disk we see, is about twelve thousand degrees Fahrenheit. But sunspots, Frank, are these cooler regions that are actually porous into that big cloud of gas. And those, they look dark because they're cooler, and they're about six to 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But what happens is when these sunspots, they're propagating magnetic fields all around them. So if we could see in the light, which we don't see other than we see visible light, we would see all these seething magnetic fields like the spider webs across the top. And what happens is, very simply, is when those spider webs of magnetic fields snap or come together, They release a tremendous amount of energy, and I'm talking like one solar flare, even for a fraction of a second, could be that of the energy, get a load of this, of maybe 100 million atomic bombs going off at one time with the energy that then moves up through the sun. And then it then propagates up to something we call the solar corona, which is sometimes described as the sun's atmosphere, and that's even hotter than the surface of the sun. That's a big quandary in physics. But then all that energy in big packets is sent up. The simplest explanation would be like taking a garden hose and taking a fine focus of that water and just spraying something, maybe a person or somebody or something, the energy that's coming out, of course, it's not water. That gets pulled into the Earth's poles or it can disrupt the atmosphere in the simplest way we can talk about it. And it's something that is on the uptick, as I said before, not to alarm listeners, but The important part of this is that the solar forecasters are saying that there should be a higher frequency of this particular solar storms thing than they predicted uh, for this solar cycle 25. And we might be a sitting duck if one of those CMEs, coronal mass ejections, blasts off in the general direction. It's like taking a shotgun. And if we're in the line of fire directly in that line of fire, we get the most damage and in this case, we hope that they're glancing blows, not direct hits. Well, well what, would, what, what would that look like? What would a direct hit from one of those CMEs look like on our planet? Well, if we go back to the great 1859 Carrington event, probably the most prolific event, Frank, that was recorded in what we call semi-modern times. There was a gigantic flare that was observed by the namesake, the Richard Carrington, the observer. This Carrington event that they described in 1859 It was just this massive blast of protons and energy that lit up the atmosphere of the Earth, but did something, I think I mentioned this once before. In the pre-internet days, what did we have? The early internet days were not computers, they were the telegraph. Mm. 
And there's such a such an induction of energy hit the telephone wires and lines and set them on fire in many places around the earth. And auroras, the northern lights, as people call them, or southern lights, were seen as far south as Cuba or even down in Colombia, where they're hardly ever seen before. So if we had one on that scale, it would be uh, simply to say, or simple to say, pretty devastating with our digital world that we live in with electronics, right? Uh, that That is for sure. We'll take your calls uh, in just a minute uh, at 800-848-9222. Still four or five lines open if you want to jump on board. 800-848-WABC. What's going on with the James Webb Telescope? Uh, th- what's the latest since last we've spoken about what images we're seeing from the James Webb Telescope? Well, it's sure, but uh, moving forward very positively. I mean, I'm amazed, Frank, at this. I'm sure many listeners are that nothing really has gone wrong with the James Webb Telescope. You would imagine such a complicated folding device that had to be unfolded in space. The latest is that they were spending time trying to focus those 18 mirrors, and they were picking some obscure star in the heavens, and they were doing, I think this is like the third of seven of these alignment tests. And what they're doing is they're trying to get a focused image on all of these 18 mirrors, and then eventually they're going to focus everything into that one singular point. So it's amazing. All this is happening very positively and very successfully. And I imagine, as we're hearing this, and I don't have an absolute date for confirmation, but it looks like probably early June or in June, we're going to start to see some of the first research projects actually uh, underway. And this would be so amazing as this telescope peers back to the earliest times of what we call the Big Bang post-creation. And what is that? 13.8 billion years ago. We're going to try to peer back almost, well, we can't get to the exact, you know, expansion, but I'm sure we'll be getting even as close to maybe as 380,000, maybe 300 million years after the Big Bang, uh, you know, uh, China expansion. So the things are looking very good. So it looks positive for James Webb. Take us through that again, if you would, because that's always a subject, and I know we've touched upon it before, but it's always a subject Mm -hmm. that I end up getting a lot of questions about it after we end up speaking about it. How can the James Webb Telescope help us see what happened, if not at the time of the Big Bang, shortly after the Big Bang in in cosmic terms? How does that happen? Well, it's a good question, and here's the answer. We look and tried to do this with ground-based telescopes, and we still do. And a ground-based telescope in Chile, Frank, one of the largest ones in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest regions and clearest skies in the world, if you ever want that, you'd want to go there. But the ground-based telescopes, even these big giant telescopes, have to still peer through the Earth's atmosphere. So we have Hubble, which has a little bigger than what, around a 94-inch mirror. The James Webb has a 21-foot mirror. So what's going to happen, very simply, is that the ability for this to see fainter and fainter objects, we call it magnitude. And the, the, the highest positive magnitude that an average person can see on a really dark night, let's say out in the country, would be plus six. Some of the James Webb telescope images may be upwards. Think about this. Ground-based telescopes may give us images of maybe plus 30 on the magnitude scale, but with James Webb with its giant mirror, it's going to be able to peer deeper and deeper into the universe, meaning seeing fainter and fainter objects. And that itself is just amazing. But it's going to be doing this primarily in the infrared, which is the heat signature left over from all these objects that lie out wow. into the universe, and I find that quite fascinating. Absolutely. And I'm sure the listeners do, too. Uh, absolutely. 800-848-WABC. Let's begin with Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Oh, how are you doing? Good okay. morning, Bill. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, 
All right. Now, when I was a teenager, I learned a mnemonic for the spectral types of stars, right, that go from O for a blue-white star like Vega Mm -hmm. down through G, Mm -hmm. which is the Earth's sun, Mm -hmm. down to red dwarfs like Bernard's star, which is M. Okay. Yes. Now, now, just before I ask the question, tell me what mnemonic you learned. Well, here's the thing I can remind you of. An astronomer named Harlow Shapley, when he was teaching college classes, he came up with this mnemonic, as we call spectral classes, and just let everybody know this. Bill, this is interesting. Spectral classes go now, there's so many subcategories, but they start off, let's say, with W and O. But Harlow Shapley had this mnemonic. It was something like this. Oh, boy, kiss me right now, sweetie. And he had a few other letters in there because it was O, B, and you went down the spectral class line. But now today, I don't think there's any simple mnemonic because I think it starts with W class. These are super hot stars. And it goes all the way down to these tiny, tiny little red dwarfs that are almost, I should even say brown dwarfs, that are almost invisible. But don't you think, Bill, that this is fascinating that even the astronomers could come up with this categorization of stars it's like taking different types of animals in the world, of like in zoology, and coming up with all these different species, mm. and they're doing this with objects that are nowhere near the Earth. But that's basically what that mnemonic was. It was something that people remembered even in high school and college when they took astronomy. Okay. What I learned was, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me now. And mm-hmm. the end type, right. they've, they've deleted from the list. But... Okay, right. here's the question, okay? Now, there's there's a whole long series of recorded lectures by mm-hmm. the teaching company. Do you know what this is? No, sir, I do not know that about at all. Hello? Bill, um, real, you, I just want to get to some other people as well, Bill. Can we get to your question quickly? Okay. I saw this. Uh, okay. There was this lecture, he says, we can't use, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me anymore because it's too sexy. <laughs> You're probably right, Bill, in today's sensitive right? world. And I, hey, he I have say we're not allowed to what, what remember it anymore. <laughs> okay. All right, Bill. That's Thanks. interesting. But hey, it does help, don't you think, Frank? It, it would help. It, it certainly would. Sometimes the more controversial uh, and, and mnemonic is, the easier it is to remember. Uh, 800-848-WABC. <laughs> Louie is driving on I-95. Hello, Louie. Hi, Louie. Hello, Frank. Hey, Dr. Sky. I feel privileged to be able to get to talk twice on your radio show. Thank you very much. It's hey, great to pleasure. have you. Thank my you. Pleasure. You bet. Can you hear me? Yeah, Louie, what's your question? Go ahead. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Sorry, We're ready. Sorry. Okay, my question <laughs> is, is, uh, is the ESA, the European Space Agency, still uh, sending a mission uh, to uh, Europa, the uh, water uh, moon? If there's life, or or just to scope it out, yes, I would, I I've been wondering. I don't get any information on it. Yes, they are, and and something interesting too. A, a Congressman Culberson in Texas, he was one of the originators for the American mission to Europa, and we have to remind everybody that this is interesting, Louis. That of all these different satellites, of all these different planets, or these small moons. The two most prolific ones that might look like they have some sort of subterranean or sub-ocean life is definitely Europa. And there's also going to be a mission to another object called Titan, 
which is actually the largest satellite in the solar system that has an atmosphere. And that's going to, I believe, could be called the Dragonfly mission. And it'll make that Ingenuity helicopter. That's the first iteration of, you know, landing and taking off in the form of a helicopter. This one, like a Dragonfly, will be able to fly all over places like the, the uh, moon Titan. But I'm interested, like many people, to see just what the heck is under the ices of Europa. And that also has a lot to do with Kubrick's film when we talk about 2001 mm. and 2010. So that's fascinating stuff, Louis. Yes, they're Abs- on board. Absolutely. A couple of months ago, we talked a little bit about the NASA DART program, and then we went off on a little mm-hmm. bit of a tangent on all the great sure. movies that uh, have asteroids hurtling towards the Earth over the years, mm-hmm. all those disaster films, all those science fiction mm-hmm. films. Now it appears China is developing its own asteroid de- deflection mission or deflection system. What exactly is China doing? Well, it's kind of a replication in my part, you know, from what I've read, Frank. This is interesting, and, it, and it's a new story that keeps coming in, so there's not a final, final analysis on this. But just like the DART mission that we're sending out there to this little tiny dual asteroid system, Didymus and Dimorphos, they're also going to have a kinetic device that slams into an object, meaning a small asteroid or a small moon of an asteroid, to just see how much you can push it away or tug it. And I find that fascinating, but I hope they can do both countries or both nations, United States and China, or whoever else is doing it. When you think, do it pretty quick, because who knows what's lurking out there in the cosmos. And even a small asteroid, as we'll probably talk more about some strange objects that have come from not just this solar system, but other star systems, China, and you got to give them credit for this, you know, not politically we're talking here, we're just talking technology. I mean, they've done some amazing firsts, like take the Mars mission, for example. They were the first nation to do all the, all the different levels, like send a spacecraft, an orbiter, a lander, and a rover in one fell swoop, and also do this on the other side of the moon, the so-called far side, not the dark side. And this technology that they're also developing uh, hopefully will save mankind, just like our DART mission, even if in the smallest way, we really should salute all the technology that's happening. Uh, China is obviously a country that we occasionally find ourselves at loggerheads with. And there Mm -hmm. certainly could be some concern about China having this asteroid deflection system in space. Is there is there um, a, a fear that China could use this to shoot down other people's satellites, either private businesses or other governments or any other things. Is that something that's been vowed at all? And is there anything you could say to reassure us? Well, I don't think I can reassure anybody on this one, Frank, because let me say this. They're looking at deflecting a larger object. But guess what? They actually do have, according to reliable sources, and again, I get most of my information, not just from the Internet, but talking to space professionals, What we believe China also has is a spacecraft that has the grappling hook or the robotic arm, and that it's also being tested in in orbit. Who knows what nefarious purposes, or if it's a simply peaceful one, maybe it's just one that goes out there to grab space junk. But in light of the political situation around the world, I would put my thinking cap on and think, wow, if I wanted to take out one of our so-called or very secret, you know, spy satellites, as we call these different uh, you know, spacecraft that are put up there for imaging the ground. Who knows what could happen? But uh, I doubt very much if that asteroid deflector would be a you know a thing to take down the satellite. It's, it's... Uh, the New York Post reporting that today uh, NASA is going to be keeping 
an, a watchful eye on an asteroid that is going to make what they describe as a knee-wobbling close pass of Earth today. Uh, the space rock 2008 AG33 is apparently up to 2,500 feet long, making it twice the size of the Empire State Building. According to reports, Mm -hmm. it's expected to scorch past at a safe distance and poses uh, no threat. Is this something that um, we're going to be able to see? And is this something that NASA could be wrong about? Could this be a little too close for comfort? Probably not wrong, Frank. And again, these spacecraft, I mean, these asteroids, as we talk about it's interesting. I, I was barking up a tree about a couple of weeks ago talking about this with friends saying we have every week we have some sort of nefarious asteroid that's coming close to us. But in this case, I can pretty much rest assure everybody on 77 WABC that there's probably no harm or danger in this. They come this particular asteroid's probably within millions of miles of the Earth, and that's a good thing. But the one that we really have to be of concern or look at with concern is the Apophis asteroid that's going to pass us. On April the 13th of 2029, this object about the size of a nuclear aircraft carrier over a thousand feet long will come, get a load of this, I didn't make it up, within some 19,000 miles, I will repeat that, 19,000 miles of the Earth. At one time, it was thought that on its successive pass, which would happen later in time, maybe like around 2036, that if it went through this little gravity area of the Earth's you know, orbit, it could then come back and hit us. But that one is really close, and that, to answer your question, that's an object that we would be able to see in the nighttime sky. Europe and, say, Africa are the best. They already have this figured out. If you were standing in a dark sky there, you would stand out at night, and you could actually watch the object moving across the sky, not as a super bright star, but it would move some 30 degrees of motion each hour. So if you take your thumb and index finger and stretch it out as far as your arm can go, That's 15 degrees against the sky. So two of those distances or diameters in an hour, that's pretty bizarre and pretty quick. That's pretty close. Absolutely. 800-848-WABC. We'll continue with your calls for Dr. Sky coming up in uh, just a bit. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Join for the hour talking all things space with the man who knows it better than anybody, Steve Cates. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like On Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me 
my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, Frank Sinatra singing Fly Me to the Moon. What better song to introduce Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, veteran TV and radio broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. If uh, you want to hear more from Dr. Sky or learn more from Dr. Sky, you got to check out his blog at KTAR.com. There's a ton of interesting stuff on there uh, that uh, if you're into space or the stars or learning more about it or you're curious about it, it's a great resource and uh, there's always an interesting angle on the spatial and cosmic news uh, that's happening out there. Uh, we're taking your calls at 800-848-9-1-800-848-WABC. Let's begin with Seth in New Jersey. Hello, Seth. Hey, how are you? I'm doing Good great. Morning, Seth. Uh, I have a, a question. I was just wondering, how are scientists able to measure the age of the universe if they say space-time is relative depending on where you are in the universe? And I've also heard that at the point of the Big Bang, space expanded at a rate faster than light itself. So without a consistent reference of time, how do we age the universe? It's a very interesting question. And what we're doing is we're measuring as best as we can through the infrared signature of these objects and the visual signature, light. And we're seeing what happens over the course of time. So what we're seeing, Seth, is that as we go back into the early part of the so-called Big Bang, I like to call it the big expansion, 13.8 billion years ago, light years as we're talking about, astronomers are able to detect through what we call spectral analysis. If you take a picture of, let's say, we all remember from school, we saw this spread spectrum of colors, you know, left, right, blue on one side, red on the other. They're measuring the distance of these objects and that distance that they measure, let's say they pointed like on a chalkboard or something or on you know, on a wall board. What they're doing is they're measuring this particular image, a spectrum, and however far to the right that shift is in the red shift of light, they're determining how far that object is and thus in turn meaning how old it is. But remember, when this so-called big expansion took place, something happened around 380, you know, million years into the expansion when the entire universe just heated up. It's as if like you fried something on the uh, on the stove in the pot and it's stuck to the, the pan. You burn butter or something and it's stuck. So we have this thing called the cosmic microwave background radiation that took place around 380 million uh, years after the expansion. But we're able only to get back as far as we can see the object light-wise or at least thermal image-wise. And we're still going to hopefully get better stuff like we were talking about with Frank with the James Webb Telescope. Thanks, Seth. Great question. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yes, yeah, Steve. A couple of questions. One is... Uh, Good morning. How the, yeah, how does the moon affect the surface of the Earth? 
well, we, we know about the tides, but uh, there are other things. And also heat retention. Now, from the mm-hmm. sun, if you look, they say some cities retain more heat uh, mm-hmm. than the suburbs because of the concrete. They might be one degrees higher or a rock mm-hmm. on the beach. is It mm-hmm. stays uh, hot or, or warm after the sunset. Right. Well, what's happening here is it's something called solar insulation. And what that means in simple earth language is if you take the sun at a low angle, this is not good for people who have, you know, solar panels on their home. If you have an extremely low sun, you're not getting per square inch or per square meter the amount of energy that's coming from the sun that you can when it's higher. So what happens is when we're talking about the sun as far as its angle in the sky, the moon itself, this is very interesting, the moon itself, if you look at it, when the Apollo astronauts went around the moon, they noticed something very strange. They were sitting there, let's say, the, the, the poor guy that had to sit there when the other two were on the surface of the moon, he was pretty lonely, but he noticed as he went around the moon that there were various changes in the gravity. So the moon itself, if you look at it, Joe, does not have a singular strong magnetic or gravity field. It changes. So what I'm saying to you is, as that moon gets closer to the Earth, we know that there's exceptional tides or the lack of tides. But otherwise, other than that, there, there is no direct effect that the moon has. It's probably not going to be able to cause any deep earthquakes in the Earth, probably not, except when it gets extremely close to the Earth on these rare occasions when we call it you know, not only a supermoon, but in history, the moon has come very close to the Earth. Then I might you know, want to vote for the fact that maybe there'll be some earthquake activity because of the extra, you know, extra tides and the extra gravity of the moon. But I don't think we'd have much to worry about. The moon's not going to cause other than the tides, which we depend on. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-WABC. Speaking of things that are nearby the Earth, or speaking of things like the moon that we can see, by the way, last week there were some beautiful views of of the moon, uh, a full moon and then a near full moon for a few days last week. It was really something. What are the things that are worth seeing in the night sky for the next couple of days, either with the naked eye, with binoculars, or maybe even if somebody has a, a telescope and you're always kind enough to give a few other ways that people can watch what's happening in the night sky? What's happening that people can see that's kind of neat? Well, Frank, I'm glad you asked because we're going to have the jackpot. And this is it, ladies and gentlemen. This is the week, and I've been telling so many friends as we had our guests tonight here at the resort. This is the week, folks, to take a look at this great planetary conjunction. I've been getting up early morning around 4 a.m. every day because I don't want to miss it. What you're going to see, looking over to the eastern part of the sky by about an hour before sunrise, maybe even a little earlier than that, we have this most magnificent series of planets lined up. We see lowest to the horizon, Jupiter, right with the naked eye. Just a little bit to the upper right, and I'll say a little bit because it's get the best I'll say for last. We come across Venus. Still up into the sky and a few degrees to the right of that, along a line about maybe 20 degrees as you move from the horizon up to the right. The planet Mars, still visible to the naked eye, not super bright. And then a little bit farther to the right, upper right, is Saturn. But what's going to happen? This is something I'd say, if we ever gave homework on this show, Frank, I don't think we need to. But (laughs) here's one that really, I think, will really knock the socks off everything. The planets Venus and Jupiter are getting closer every single day. Take a look this morning as you get up if your skies are clear. I think the weather should be good here in the New York area and other places where 77 WABC is broadcasting proudly. These two planets, Frank, are going to get closer and closer 
And on the 30th, the morning of the 30th on Saturday, is the big event. Both of these objects will be less than a full moon diameter together, and maybe depending on where you're viewing it, maybe even closer. And to those of us that don't have perfect eyes, like myself, they may look like they've merged together. Hmm. So this is really amazing. That, that is neat. Well, so what, around yeah. what time, obviously, you know, I'm sure a lot depends on weather and so yes. forth. But around mm-hmm. what time on Saturday would you get an opti- opti- optimal view of that planetary alignment? Well, speaking as a generalist here across the nation for this radio station, I would say about an hour before sunrise, you want to look over and get your, you know, your smartphone ready or your cameras or what have you. And you should want to look over to that area of the sky, into the eastern part of the sky. I would say this way. You're going to see these two objects probably about 15 degrees up into the sky. So it's, you need to have a place where you can see a clear view of the sky, no big building in front of you, or find a place like that. But, Frank, it gets even better, and I'm hoping, with your permission, we'll Please. do another yeah. program on this. In May, we get to see the first of two total lunar eclipses. And for this radio audience, get a load of this. On the night of May 15th, late in the night for the East Coast, out here in Arizona, we'll be seeing it maybe around 9 p.m. local time in mountain time. A total eclipse of the moon that will take place that will be spectacular. And this happens on a Sunday night late in the evening for the New York area, let's say, in the East Coast. And again, it happens into the early evening for us. But what makes this interesting is it's one of those special eclipses where some people like to call it the blood red moon or the blood moon eclipse. There's a lot to talk about this. And if you missed that one, there's one in, in early November, I believe. I'm not checking this, you know, by looking at any computer here, but I believe it's the night or the morning of November the 8th. But Frank, we got some great stuff. So summary, I'd be looking over into that sky as I get up early this morning, let's say, if you have clear skies. But watch over the next few days how quickly Venus is overtaking Jupiter and these two, remember, Venus is closer, obviously. It's planet number two, but Jupiter is now over 500 million miles away. So Venus is doing most of the work to get close. But isn't that incredible? Jupiter, the god of God Zeus, Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, all in the sky. Don't miss it. It's really beautiful. Absolutely. That's wild. 800-848-9222. Lisa is in Nutley, New Jersey. Hello, Lisa. Hey, guys. How are you? Great. Thanks good, for morning. good morning. Good morning, Lisa. Hi, Thank uh, you. No, good. Yes. Um, question: If we start mining from minerals on the moon, mm-hmm. just okay. We, how sorry, long does it? Uh, yeah. What? We just repeat. I didn't hear you. Please yeah, repeat. we we didn't hear. What oh, you said. okay. Good. Um, yeah. As if we land on the moon and we start mining minerals, how long does a human body, or is the human body allowed to stay up there before the gravity starts to affect our muscles? You know, that's very interesting. The only thing I can tell you, Lisa, is Scott Kelly probably has the best answer. And if we read his book, Endurance, he had the previous record of having to stay up in space. And it's pretty much the same thing. But on the lunar surface, that's interesting. We haven't had anybody that stayed on the moon other than, let's say, hours at a time, many, many hours, all the way up to the Apollo 17. But remember, you weigh one-sixth your weight that you would weigh on the Earth on the lunar surface. But that's a very interesting question because... A lot of things, this is what they're really doing. A lot of people don't realize this. One of the big research projects on the ISS is to see how long people can handle the same thing you're asking about, Lisa. What happens to muscles and, on the, and the legs? And apparently, I'm not a medical doctor, 
but you get atrophy of the muscles of the legs. Just ask uh, Mark Benheide, who came back from now the longest American in space. You see them in these chairs when they land in those Russian spacecraft on the, on the ground. They have to grab them and actually carry them because your legs are so weak. So what's fascinating is, can you imagine, Lisa, just walking on the surface of the moon, doing some exploration, but bringing back minerals from the moon? Here's the, here's the one, Frank and Lisa, that we really need to be working on. Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to ever go to the moon and walk on it, he said, and I agree with him, we need to harvest the isotope called helium-3. And what would that do? Hey, that would give us almost an unlimited amount of power in a fuel source. And maybe that would get us away finally from all the petrochemicals. Because I know friends of mine in California, they're paying, I couldn't believe it. They told me that they were paying $7.63 a gallon for fuel. And I have no idea what it is on the East Coast, but here in Arizona, we're still paying in the high fours and five if you got diesel. So let's go to the moon. We're in the upper threes. It went down like five cents, but not big, not much. Wow. Well, there you go. thank you, Lisa. Um, you know, it is interesting. You alluded to the Hubble Space Telescope earlier in mm-hmm. the context of the James Webb sure. Telescope. Uh, there are some interesting images coming through the Hubble Space Telescope, including a record large comet. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, now the Hubble comes up and it's you know, it's time to be center stage. You know, they say, what, everybody's famous for 15 minutes. Well, the Hubble's back in that category. Because what it did, it's imaged one of the most bizarre objects, Frank, in the entire solar system. Recent discovery, I had an inter- opportunity as to interview the co-discoverer of this. It's a comet called Bernardinelli Bernstein. And it's a rather bizarre object because the Hubble took some images, I believe, back in January. Its official name in the astronomy world, for everybody out there who's you know, very sensitive to this, is C-2014-UN-271. UN-271. I'd rather call it Comet Bernard and Ellie Bernstein, the namesake of the two observers. So we had the gentleman, uh, Dr. Bernstein, on from the University of Pennsylvania. What's so important about this discovery is that this comet is amazing. I mean, I'm proud to say this. It's the largest nucleus of a comet that's ever been imaged. We look at Halley. They call it Mankind's Comet. Why? Because it's like a life cycle, at least years ago, 76 years. We live longer than that, thank God, at least for most of us. But the nucleus of Halley's was maybe upwards of four miles in diameter. That's still big. The, the comet we called Comet Hale-Bopp that, was, that wouldn't go away in the late 1990s was allegedly to be 40 miles in diameter. But what about this one? Upwards of 85 miles in diameter. And no, it's not headed toward the Earth that we have to worry but the Hubble took images of this when it's like 2 billion miles away. And that's incredible because they know that something's happening. It's outgassing even out there in the cold of space where you never see that happen until comets get closer. So that's what uh, kudos to Hubble. That's a pretty cool uh, I- imaging. Jay is in Portville, New York. Hello, Jay. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Uh, salutations to a Thursday morning. Yeah, absolutely. And Thank Jay, you. You were... You were 140% right when you said that Steve is a easy listener. <laughs> uh, he could go to the, the cemetery at 4 in the morning and, and read names, and I'd listen to him. Same here. Same <laughs> here. We may try that. If the ratings dip at all, we may send him to a cemetery. We may send him to Greenwood. Hey, here's my question, here's my question uh, Dr. Yes, Guy, and it's going to sound kind of elementary. Uh, I'm 71 years old. I've, I've laid mm-hmm. on, the, on the ground and watched the sky 
during the day and during the night, uh, thousands of hours probably in my lifetime. Uh, and it amazes me. It's, it's like everything is in a certain space. How far across do you think, you know, we, we know our universes and everything we can see. Mm-hmm. Does it go for infinity, do you think? Or, you know, what's, what's your, your take on that? Jay, again, I salute you as a fellow ground watcher and, and viewer of the sky. Your question <laughs> yeah. is incredible. Frank, this man yeah. has got something really cool going on here, because let me say this, Jay. What we think, well, no, nobody knows this for sure. I mean, but let's right. be real honest. I talk to so many astronomers and astrophysicists and everything, and a lot of them admit to me privately, and I'm going to say it publicly, they still don't know what the hell makes gravity work. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting. So here, here's, an answer that, here's an answer that I think we can all agree on here, and to uh-huh. everybody listening. When the universe expanded 13.8 billion years ago, we want to know where it is now. So astronomers say that the edge of the universe as its expansion continues is probably upwards of 90 billion light years as a complete, like if we look at the big shebang, like a big ball, like a beach ball. Yeah. So maybe 45 light year, billion light years on one side, another 45 billion. What's it expanding into? Heck, if anybody really knows. And if anybody tells you that they do know, gentlemen and listeners, I want to meet that person. I want to shake their hand because it, it's all it, an ongoing guess, really. And, and you know what I was told by a professor at, at St. Bonaventure University, and I was just a kid in grade school, okay. and I asked him that question, you know, about how big is the universe and, and, and everything that's in it. Is it in a box? He said, you know what, uh, Jay, he said, it could be everything we know that exists and the mileage out and the, and the light years and the billions and the trillions and everything. He said, that could be nothing but a piece of closet dust that just fell off a shelf. Mm. And it hasn't hit the floor yet. I like you, Jay. That's pretty good. Abs- because absolutely. You're, very you're, clever. You're, I mean, some I good mean, points. I, and and I've, ne- I've never forgot that in 71 years. My my real oh, question is this, and I hate to take up all this time, Frank. I know. I know what it is. Hmm. Uh, my real question was this. When you first come on the radio, you mentioned Sedona. I've been to Sedona. Beautiful place. A little hot for me. Yes, sir. But it's a nice, it's mm-hmm. a nice place. You, you mentioned something about lasers. Uh, were you mm-hmm. shooting lasers in the sky at night? or? Yes, we are. And let me qualify this because some people may think that, you know, obviously the common sense thing is I had to sign paperwork for these. These are really powerful. They'll go 15 yeah. or 20 miles out into the sky. This is no joke. Right, airplane, now, airplanes is what I was thinking of. Absolutely. You know? I follow every single rule and regulation and respect everything uh-huh. the FAA would say that we never point these toward aircraft. We use them just for you know educational purposes, like Frank says, edutainment. But yes, they're blue lasers that are probably upwards of six to eight hundred milliwatts, which is pretty powerful. And yes. the most powerful one I ever saw, I couldn't believe it. Back maybe twenty years ago, we used to go to the Las Vegas Hilton a lot for conventions in a business I was in. Hey, Frank and, and Jay, they had these lasers that would fire clear across the valley wow. in Las Vegas. <laughs> the thing would hit the mountain. Now, that was a laser, but we don't point them into the uh, aircraft. Yeah, well, and, and, and one more quick thing. The laser, the little red ones that you buy at the, the hardware store, mm-hmm. okay? Like a laser pointer? Uh, yeah, a laser pointer, basically. I was told by a professor, another another guy that's, that's big into physics and astro and all this stuff, he said, if you knew what was going on uh, on the tip of that, that red thing down in that, that instrument, mm-hmm. he said, you'd be amazed uh, what, it, what it is. 
chemically and nuclear and everything else. Mm-hmm. He said it's un- it's Absolutely. really unreal. I'm not reading it, but it's something like light amplification by simultaneous emission of radiation. I think that's what spells out laser. But but you're yeah. right, my friend. That's you don't want to use them. See, there's another thing people use these, and I don't want to you know be like doing a public safety thing here. But obviously, right. we need to. You know, you have so many yeah. people pointing them at animals, right. so many people pointing right. them at people. And look at what law enforcement has to deal with. God forbid. Absolutely. Right? Shoot, Absolutely. Uh, great points. Don't do that. Uh, great points all. 800 uh, We're going to continue with your calls in a minute. And we'll give you some tips on uh, taking a look at next month's lunar eclipse. Uh, you can mark your calendars accordingly. There's some interesting events going on with respect to that. And uh, a few other subjects that I'm going to pick Steve Cates' brain on. Talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, for the hour, if you want to comment. Or, uh, or have a question about anything we're discussing, give him a call, 1-800-848-9222. You can also always check out his blog at ktar.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, free flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high. As a kite by then I miss the earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a timeless flight The great Elton John singing Rocket Man. He's no William Shatner, but he holds his own. Uh, talking about all things space with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. Uh, we'll squeeze in as many of your questions as we can for the next nine minutes. 800-848-9222. But, Steve, I did want to ask you about uh, yes. the lunar eclipse next month. I think the date is May 15th. Is that right? It is, Frank, and I guess your show's on the air probably as this is going to happen, but here we go. On Sunday evening, May 15th, these are in Eastern Daylight Times, and everybody converted accordingly. At 10.27 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Sunday, May 15th, the left edge of the moon goes into the Earth's umbra. This is the deeper shadow that the Earth has. The outer penumbra, you're not going to miss anything unless you're really a science person, and believe me, most people are not going to notice the difference. Get set, 11.29 p.m. on that Sunday evening, May 15th. The total eclipse begins. Then maximum eclipse, 11 a.m. Monday morning, the 16th. That's interesting. That's when the blood moon 
or however we, I call it like a Chinese lantern, you'll be able to see in dark locations the moon hanging in the sky like it's some kind of a lantern, and the stars will come out, and that's magnificent. And the total eclipse ends 12.53 a.m., Monday the 16th, and the partial eclipse is over at 1.55 a.m. So I imagine when you come on the air, what, Sunday night into Monday morning, that's going to be happening at that particular time as the eclipse slows down and goes the other direction. Well, that's, that, that's pretty neat. I'll, I'll be watching. And unlike the solar eclipse, where they always caution people not to sure. stick an eye, there's nothing wrong with staring directly at a lunar eclipse, right? No, totally safe for the whole thing. And what you have to pray for and hope for is clear skies, because this is an amazing thing. But again, as we project into the future... In November, I believe it's the 8th, and then we'll get the exact times as we hopefully talk again uh, in the future on that. And don't forget, tomorrow morning or today, for the East Coast and everywhere listening, you have this great planetary conjunction before the sunrise. Absolutely. I think uh, in our area, I think the Liberty Science Center is doing something fun on May 15th for the lunar eclipse. I thought I saw nice. one of our listeners post something about that in our uh, Facebook group. So if people are interested mm-hmm. in, in that, they should contact the Liberty Science Center. Before uh, we run out of time, I wanted to be sure to ask you about this. Uh, just recently, mm-hmm. they confirmed that a meteor came to Earth in uh, 2014, an interstellar meteor. And the astronomer from Harvard, uh, Avi Loeb, who's been very controversial of late, but he's been he's very well-respected and very highly regarded. He's been a guest on this show. He believes that there's a possibility that this could actually be alien technology. What can you tell us about this meteor? Why did it take us eight years to confirm that it was an interstellar meteor? And why does Avi Loeb think that it could be alien technology? Well, it's still a great quandary because before the object that we, for the first object that we actually thought was an interstellar object, was an object discovered by a good friend of mine, Dr. Robert Warrick at the Haleaka Observatory in Hawaii. He discovered something called Oumuamua which means in the Hawaiian native language, and if I didn't get it correctly, the pronunciation, I apologize, it means scout. So this was some pancake-shaped object that came through the solar system and believed was from an interstellar uh, destination. But we find out that back in 2014, in January, over New Guinea, some object smaller, maybe one and a half feet in diameter, actually came through the atmosphere. But why Dr. Loeb thinks this, and other scientists, and this is where I'm a little confused, we have a general from, like, Space Force talking and confirming that this was actually the first interstellar object. Why? Because when they do the, me- the measurements of the orbit and the deductions, this has a very, very high uh, hyperbolic. Remember the word hyperbolic orbit eccentricity. Mm. And it had a rather high one, meaning it didn't come from the sun or the solar system. It was kicked out of another star system. But who knows, because the object is so tiny, maybe a search and rescue crew will go find it someday. But I think the way he thinks that is he also believes very strongly that there's something strange with the Oumuamua, because here's the bottom line on that. As it was leaving the solar system, by the way, it was discovered not inbound, but it was discovered outbound. It's accelerating as it's going out of the solar system. Normal objects would slow down, but that is fascinating, Frank, isn't it? That's oh, it's, it certainly is. It's squeezing as many calls as we can in the next few minutes. Ari is in Brooklyn. Ari, you're on with Steve Cates. Hello, how you doing, guys? Great. Good morning, Ari. Good morning, good morning. Great, great show. Big fan. Very Thank you. Appreciate and, uh, you. You explain you. stuff very nice. Frankie's not bad himself, too. <laughs> um, 
question, question. Um, when you say in the planetary um, alignment, what do you see? You see like, uh, do you see like, like the moon far away? Yes, Larry, what you see is objects that look like stars, but they're planets. They'll line up, like I said, Jupiter lowest bright, Venus bright. You'll see that with the eye, no problem. But as you go up about 20 degrees up to the right from where the sun would come up, where you first see Jupiter, that line of planets, they look like star-like objects, but they're obviously planets. So they look, they look like pinpoints of light. That's the answer. Yeah, I'm going to be getting up early Saturday. Uh, I, I have a tough time going back to a normal sleep schedule on the weekend anyway. But I, I'm going to see yes. if uh, hopefully the weather will be warm enough to allow a, a cigar on my front porch as I do some planet gazing. That'll be a lot of fun. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Les is in New Milford, New Jersey. Hello, Les. Good morning. Um, morning when Les. scientists talk about gravity, they say it's a distortion of space, and they sometimes mm-hmm. give an example of a sheet of saran wrap that's stretched tight right. and then a bowling ball mm-hmm. is sitting on it and it distorts it. And then a marble mm-hmm. comes along and gets caught in that distorted saran wrap and it goes in a different mm-hmm. direction. But they don't explain why the bowling ball distorts the saran wrap in the first place. It it seems like circular reasoning. Mm-hmm. Well, the best I can answer at this early morning, and believe me, folks, this is interesting unless your your points are well taken. The, exa- the analogy that you're talking about is interesting. Einstein was one of the first that predicted this, and he predicted that he would check an eclipse of the sun and look at Mercury sitting next to the sun. They found a distinct deflection, and that was the first time they found it. But the interesting part about this is just to put gravity in, in, in summation. It is a warpage of space-time as a massive object or an object comes next to it. Every single object in the universe, no matter what its size, would have some tiny, what, infinitesimal number of gravitation warpage because of the space-time curvature that it puts in. So what I'm trying to say in simple English, this is an amazing subject. But truly, Les and Frank and everybody listening, nobody really understands gravity. And if anybody does, well, I'd love to get an email from them and give me that whole concept because I'll pass it on to a good guy named Dr. Kip Thorne at Caltech. I remember getting Frank, and I'm honest with the audience always. I got a C-plus in the gravitation book. The textbook was as thick as the white pages was in New York in the <laughs> old days. And I used it and asked him to sign it, and he asked me why. He asked me why I got a C-plus. I said, because I didn't understand gravity. But what do I use it for? I use it when I do programs to have little children stand on it. You get it. Symbolically, that they can be closer to the heavens. How about that? Uh, you know, Steve, uh, a ton of people on hold waiting to talk to you. We're not going to get to them. If people have questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Well, the email that I suggest is just Dr. Sky Show, D-R-S-K-Y Show at gmail.com. I'm certainly you know, happy. I'm honored mm. to be able to you know, respond to questions that people have. And it's always a privilege and honor here, Frank, being on 77 WA. Uh, it's so, our honor. Steve, know, th- uh, th- yes. I'm sorry, we're out of time. I appreciate it very much. We'll do it again soon.